When the mountains first called to him, he was in the valley, and more importantly, he was alive. It had been sunset. The horizon was golden, like the dried turnips he'd shelved earlier that day. The dulling sun, pink and glow, a cupped egg cradled by the hands of a darkening sky on either side. In the field where he stood, the grass blew against his ankles, scraping the bottoms of the tattering corduroy pants he'd always worn because they were simple and good and all he'd known. All he'd known, all he'd known, like the path he'd walked from his small cabin this night as he had every other night, to stand at the lowest part of the valley but never beyond. Like the rolling hills that rippled beyond the crumbling wooden fence he had put up years before, not so much to keep others out as to keep himself in. Because this path, these hills, the cabin, was simple and good, simple and good, and all he'd known. When the mountains first called to him, he was in the valley, and he was alive. He did not pay them attention, but that did not mean he did not hear, as much as he tried to. Come, come, they said, but he would not. He would not because he had no need to. He was comfortable, and it would be great risk to leave. Great risk, and for what reward? What did the mountains have that he did not? There, in the spreading twilight alive, he closed his eyes and crouched down to the still rustling trousers against the dampening grass, pressing his ears to drown out the beckoning wind. Above him, the hands of the sky released the egg they held until it sunk lower and lower, finally cracking against the horizon, spilling its dull light so thin against the earth that its glow was soon swallowed up and he was left in the dark and the still of the night. Quiet, quiet, simple and quiet, and all he'd known. The next time the mountains called to him, he was no longer in the valley, and he was dead. It was still painful, and maybe always would be painful, he realized. But at some point he had gotten used to the pain, just like he had gotten used to the corduroy pants that tickled his ankles in the foreign breeze. When Pearl died, a part of him had died with her. But he had accepted that. He'd become okay with that, saved by the comfort of the little ranch cabin. He sold the horses immediately, they reminded him too much of Pearl. But he had kept the cabin and the fields and the gardens they had tended as a team, because giving those up felt too much like betrayal, a gut-wrenching disposal of the last thing they had built together. But the half-tired, half-terrified feeling was back, acid pumping in his heart, and with a weathered hand to his chest he closed his eyes. The feeling he had had twenty-five years ago, sharp at first, but that had over time dulled to nothingness, was back. It was back and it was strong, and he couldn't return to the house. That and the mountains were calling. The mountains were calling and he could not go home. Life had been quiet and comfortable, and this, therefore, this new thing could not be life. For all intents and purposes, he was dead, and the mountains still called.
The river was safe, and so are the mountains. Do not be afraid. The river carried you here, closer to them, closer to what you seek. You will find it there in the mountains. Do you believe that? You have to be patient like the mountains are patient. They have been patient with you, don't you see? Gently they called, earnestly they called, but still they had to be patient, because you would not come. Not at first. You doubted them, but they didn't doubt you. And so they kept calling. These mountains in particular have been here a long, long while. They are used to waiting, to watching their own rocks fall far from them after eons of hanging on. The mountains let them fall, because it is not fruitful to hang on to something that has passed its time. But they wait, because new rocks form, chiseled by the faithful rain and steadfast wind, forming new ridges and new crevices in their sides, creating landscapes slightly altered from the first landscapes the mountains boasted, even as, at the heart, the mountains remain the same. At their core, they are the same mountain after all. They know this, and so they let the rocks fall never complaining, never wanting, never wishing for something different. Instead, simply standing, steadfast as the rain and wind that beat them to bless them, everything in its time. You are not a mountain, but you have been called by the mountains, and the mountains call only what is their own. Remember that when you feel discouraged. Remember that when the rains and winds come, because still they will come, even as you have been called. Remember that, the call of the mountains, when you slip in your search, and when you stumble in your ascent. On and on they call, and onward you must go, looking to the ones who whispered your name, because in them you have your treasure. It is there waiting for you, if you'll continue to seek. Do you believe that? They left Mac's cabin, which from the outside had the appearance of a log cabin, except instead of individual logs stacked one on top of another, it seemed to be instead created by branches and twigs extending from the trees that surrounded it, like it had been swallowed by the woods itself, or more accurately was just now emerging from them, birthed from somewhere within. Andrew shook his head and followed Mac, who set off whistling. The trail had vanished. It was behind them, sneaking back into the woods the way they had come the previous night. And now before them lay thinning trees clustered together, growing out of slanted ground which marked the base of the mountains. They clambered over thick roots, though they were nothing like the woods through which Andrew had bushwhacked the night before. The morning sun glinted through gaps in the mossy trunks, and Andrew kept his neck tucked towards the ground so as to shield his eyes and let the low-hanging leaves just barely graze his head. He glanced up every now and then, his line of sight moving from the heels of Mac's muddied boots to the back of his black, wide-brimmed hat and red-checkered collar. Every time he did, Andrew had to squint. The sun was gradually rising to a place where its rays couldn't pierce the tree canopies. And somehow, every time Andrew's eyes rose to the back of Mac's head, it was as if the latter's body were a greenhouse, his head the beacon at the top, for the way the sun glinted off it was bright and unyielding. An hour passed, and still they walked briskly, ever uphill, creating switchback after switchback, 
passing two small water runoffs, and at one point, 30 yards to the left, a thundering waterfall. Waterfall so heavy and pounding that Andrew was sure he could feel its spray a hundred feet away. Taking only a moment to stare, Andrew plodded faithfully on. His breath came in little huffs, but Mac only continued whistling, his notes clear and loud before they seemed to blend into the sunlight that continually surrounded his head and disappear. Andrew wasn't really sure how far or how high they had hiked until there was a break in the tree line. Above them, the trees continued in smaller, shorter clumps, but the dense, twisting roots and the thickest of trunks were now behind them. Andrew didn't think he would have made it this high, this fast, if it hadn't been for Mac. Mac moved like the light moved. Andrew couldn't always pinpoint where each step pressed the dirt, but there were always footprints. Mac's boots seemed to blend into the slanting shadows made by the trees. One moment his foot was pushing off the dirt, and the next he was a few yards ahead, the same leg propelling him from behind a fallen tree trunk. Distracted by Mac's movement, Andrew had lost track of time. He hadn't even noticed his own panting breaths and aching calf muscles. But the mystery of Mac's travel had worked to Andrew's benefit. Though, by stopping, he finally realized his exhaustion. They had made it to the gap between two of the mountains. There, in the break of the woods, Andrew could see the continuation of the peak they were headed towards, gray and jagged at the summit hundreds of yards above them. Across the saddle, another mountain stood, taller than the one they were on, but softer somehow, less abrupt in its ascent. Beyond them, on the other side of the mountain range, more peaks rose, reds and purples and deep gray rock all rising together, solid and unyielding. Those two were dotted black and green with forests, though these were not as dense as the ones from which the two men had come. Andrew wondered what was beyond these peaks, but their summits were shrouded in swirling light fog, and he could not see behind them. His heart sank. The mountain ridge they were on was vast enough. The range of mountains beyond it seemed even more unending. Pearl was in the mountains, waiting for him, and he had no way of knowing which one she might be on. Though they were above it now, Andrew realized, the valley had been above them for the majority of their day's hike, hidden from sight, still existing, but to them as nothing. If she had ever climbed this mountain when alive, and he still wasn't convinced this wasn't death, Andrew was sure that Pearl had never mentioned this valley before. How could something so grand, so beautiful exist without being seen? It was almost unfair. Watching him, Max spoke suddenly. That's the valley girl, he said, pointing a long finger towards the trees below with a saddle where they stood. Andrew stared. So focused was he on the beauty of the valley that he hadn't even noticed the spectacle directly beneath them. Not 100 yards away, with the slope of the ridgeline, it was indeed, as Mac had indicated, a girl. She was crouched on the rock, black as obsidian that was lodged in the middle of the river just before it spilled into the trees. Andrew realized that this must be the same river that coursed near the path Mac had trailblazed, and the source of the 30-foot waterfall he had marveled at hours before. She's a good girl, Mac said. Andrew glanced over. While he had to shield his own eyes from against the sun breaking against the horizon, Mac's hands remained at his side. His eyes burned golden, their own small fires. The way he had said it wasn't as Andrew remembered people saying it about dogs, a doting fondness, she's a good girl, but rather with some respect, like this small girl crouched on a rock was greater than himself. 
The Valley Girl? Andrew ventured. Unexpectedly, Max snorted. It ain't like it sounds these days, you know. Like one of those Valley Girls with vocabulary 50% likes and 30% lols or MOGs or talk to you laters or XOXO or whatever they say these days. He looked over at Andrew and sighed. They've butchered her reputation, you know. She deserves more than that. The Valley Girl's been stomping the Great River from flooding the first mountains since before anyone here can remember. Andrew squinted over the ridgeline. He was old, but he was sure the girl below, with her long blonde hair and fair skin, couldn't have been more than fifteen. He shook his head. Mac himself could have been any age, and though he didn't know much, Andrew now knew enough about this world he found himself in that he figured he better not question it. But Mac had said something about the river and the mountains. The Great River? The First Mountains? Still holding a hand against the sun, Andrew craned his neck towards the fog, swirling across the peaks of the mountains. He pointed towards the girl below them, whose head was bowed and almost touching the rock on which she knelt. Most valleys are quiet, unassuming, Mac said, staring down at the girl. He looked at Mac, then grinned, flashing white teeth. Sometimes they're a little shy, especially if the mountains around them are particularly loud. They take all the spotlight, I guess. Andrew's head was spinning, but Mac didn't notice. The valley girl, though, she's special. She bears the brunt of the work, holding back the great river. Imagine the woods below, and all of us who live there, people and towns and me and my hut, if she didn't stay put in that river. He shook his head, still smiling, the fire back in his eyes, a sort of reverence. Andrew closed his mouth, just realizing it had fallen open, holding back the... But he trailed off, peering down into the valley, into that moment realizing what he was seeing. A young girl, yes, blonde and fair, in the middle of the icy, swirling currents. But she wasn't crouching on a rock. She was the rock. Though he had first thought her legs were bent beneath her, hidden under her torso against a smooth black surface, Andrew saw that her torso blended evenly with not a rock, but a thick black skirt, which was thigh-deep in glacial river that flowed around her. And it did flow around her. But the longer Andrew watched, the more he could see the great river swirling behind her, pushing back at her in waves where she stood firm-footed before it eddied around her and coursed past, but this time more controlled. The valley girl was stopping what would have surely been a destructive force from crashing over the side of the mountain to flood the world below. The waterfall? He gestured back the way they'd come, but left unchecked. He made a tsk sound and returned to the valley. Mac raised one hand, which looked darker than usual in the setting sun. Below them, the valley girl raised her head. She gave Mac a small smile, the softest of nods, and then Andrew watched as her gaze turned and fell on him. There was so much space between himself on the saddle and the fields and rivers below. But when the girl looked at him, the whole valley seemed to rise up towards him until he felt that if he were to fall into it, it would catch him. In all of this, the valley girl's gaze held him, and looking at her tender smile, punctured by pain and resilience alike, Andrew heard a voice, mild and sweet, rise up to his ears on a breeze infused with the fragrance of alpine blossoms. Your grief is powerful, Andrew, and it consumes you. But there is good in it. There can be good in it, in a course directed. Where am I in you, Andrew? Where am I? The two men had walked the ridge along the saddle and reached the mountain to the left. 
When Andrew had asked Mac why they weren't going to finish climbing the first mountain, the mountain they descended to reach the saddle, Mac had pointed to the valley, where the small blonde girl stood in the great river, her skirts billowing around her, the strain on her back evident only by the white-capped water behind her, balanced by the peace on her face. This mountain was just part of the journey, Mac had said. You climb the mountain to see the valley. Andrew had seen the valley, and the people resting below. The valley girl's words came back to him. Your grief is powerful, and it consumes you. Where am I in you? The big dark shape kept coming. He doesn't see us yet, hollered Mac. He can't. Who could, muttered Andrew, but Mac didn't hear him. A bolt of lightning struck somewhere to their left, followed almost immediately by a cannon-like explosion that shook the ground beneath Andrew's feet. Whoever this he was kept advancing, about thirty feet away from the two men who stood motionless in the storm. The thunder rolled around them, and Andrew was suddenly struck by the fact that though the thunder and lightning were relentless, there was no rain. Tally-ho, friend! shouted Mac, raising a flanneled arm. The man stopped. About twenty feet away now, he raised his head, and an imperceptible sound escaped Andrew's lips. The man's face was almost translucent, like the fog that surrounded him. Besides Mac, and if he counted her despite the distance, the valley girl, this was the first person Andrew had seen since he'd left his house in the hills. And like Mac, the man's clothes appeared both worn and timeless. If this whole world were death, Andrew decided, then perhaps the people who were here simply wore the clothes they'd died in. But Mac had never said this was death. Then again, he had never said it wasn't. Andrew peered more closely at the man stepping slowly towards them. He wore corduroy pants and a light jacket. Involuntarily, Andrew's eyes slid down to his own outfit, and his heart skipped a beat. It was nearly identical. We are friends from yonder mountain, shouted Mac against the wind, but his indicating arm, Andrew realized, which was stretched towards the mountain they had come from, would have been useless to the man walking towards them, because his eyes were halfway closed. Stopping five feet from them, the man inclined his head towards the newcomers, and Andrew's lips made the same imperceptible sound as before, something between a gasp and a guttural whine. The face of the man in front of him was the most terrifying thing he had ever seen. Indeed, his skin was translucent, and he would have appeared headless in the fog if not for a thick head of jet-black hair, which draped over his shoulders and ran down his back. His half-shut eyes made only his pupils visible, dark wells that sunk into the back of his head. But the most unnerving was the man's smile. It stretched across his white cheeks in a thin line, Lips pressed together and upturned at the ends in some sort of sleepy grimace. Andrew had the sense that the man was indeed smiling, but something about the way it appeared made Andrew wonder if his sleep was truly blissful. He is among the most gone of all of them, whispered Mac. The forgetting people are all gone to an extent. This is beyond what I've seen in my past travels. Seeing Andrew's face, Mac continued. They all smile, the forgetting people. And you can't call them that to their faces, by the way. It would ruin them. Because they come here to forget that they're forgetting. And it's not fair for you and I to remind them. What are they forgetting? asked Andrew. Whatever they came to forget, said Mac unhelpfully. But we all got something we want to forget to Sito. Another person, a moment, sometimes even ourselves. Wandering helps us forget. Because if we wander, our minds wander too. And then we don't have to dwell in what pains us and so we forget. This man, Mac gestured towards the sleeping man, who appeared to be, though his eyes were closed, staring at them, but hearing nothing. 
This man is hiding from the world, and everything in it that makes him remember. Look at him. Andrew's eyes flicked over Mac's shoulder. He doesn't look at the other mountains, or the great river, and he certainly doesn't want to look at the valley, because the valley is rest and reflection. But that comes with tears, and he can't bear to look at it. It's easier to forget, but forgetting comes at a cost. What do you mean, asked Andrew, wiping his sweaty palms against his corduroy pants? A gust blew across his ankles and they itched again. It took everything in him not to bend down and scratch. I mean, said Mac, leaning closer, that the forgetting people forgot the word and everything in it that hurts them. They forget the icy cold of the great river that sweeps through the valley, which would hurt to submerge in, but would ultimately refresh them. They don't want the hurt, so they forget it. But neither do they see the sun. Look at this fog. The forgetting people come to the forgetting mountain to forget. But that don't mean they don't think. They only think about what comforts them, whatever distraction they've constructed to help them forget. But they don't know it's a distraction. Not until it was too late. The two men's heads turned in unison to regard the sleeping man before them, whose eyes seemed to shut even more against the wind and the fog. Thunder crashed and lightning swirled around them, but the man was oblivious to these things. At half speed, he raised a massive hand towards his almost pressed together eyelids, and his smile stretched wider. Yes, he said, his voice low and musical as before. Yes, it is good here. It is a fine place to be. Andrew's head whipped back to look at Mac. But, I mean, he said his voice frantic, does it matter? He believes he's in paradise, so does it matter if he's really not? He's happy. The beacons that were Mac's eyes shone, if possible, even brighter, and Andrew had to close his own against them. Tosito whispered Mac, his familiar musical drawl fading into something that sounded older, years older, aged with pain and loss and the wisdom that came from it. Tosito, forgetting people are never truly happy, because they refuse to seek the truth, and they never truly forget, because what pains them also presses upon them even as they try to forget it. They will only ever forget one thing, and someday very soon, they will forget themselves within their own sanctuary. And to forget oneself, Tosito, is worth a thousand deaths. The wind howled around them once more, and the sleeping man smiled wider. He bent down to the rock shrouded in fog beneath his feet, and he lay down, curled up, and put his head beneath his hands. His eyelids closed the final millimeter between them, the fog surged around him in an instant, wrapping him up. Thunder crashed and lightning struck the blanket of mist that held the man. Andrew closed his eyes against the storm, and when he opened them again, he heard somewhere from within the fog, I am fine. But the man was gone. For the first time in 25 years, since the day his wife had taken her last breath, Andrew sunk to his knees, pressed his hands and his forehead to the fog's world ground, and sobbed. Beyond his field ran the valley, and the silently flowing river, and beyond even these, solid, towering rock that rose, at the furthest visible regions, into snow-crusted peaks. Sometimes, on a windy day, he would stand just beyond the edge of his crumbling fence, facing them, feeling the wind whip through his clothes, 
The corduroy pants he still wore from time to time, but now with a thin piece of flannel sewn to the inside of the cuffs, so they didn't itch so much anymore. On the days that he wore them, those windy days, he would stand in the field as he did before and listen. But the mountains hadn't called to him since. With a craning neck and sensitive ears, sometimes, sometimes, he thought he might be picking up something. Not a call like a summons, but something else. A melody, perhaps. The beginnings of a song, surely. One whose soft, yearning tones were last heard in a moonlit hospital room as he looked into the eyes of his dying pearl. And though these days he was the only one standing in that open field, he was not alone. Because there, riding on the wind that blew from the ancient, enduring peaks beyond, there came from the mountains to the man of song, a story, one that they could tell together. serves as my guide, strong and constant as the tide.